Alright, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for the ability to fellowship together in your Son's good name, our Lord and Savior. Such a privilege, may we never become familiar with it, Father. Thank you for your unerring grace and love and mercy. We just pray for those, Father, who are ill in the congregation that can't be with us this evening, but earnestly desire to be here with us, that you bring them back to the fold as soon as possible. Your will be done, of course. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, that they be humbled and receive saving faith so that we might have additional brothers and sisters in Christ forever and ever. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this of rejoicing a possibility for all of us. We just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Lord is our confidence, part 51. We just regained our footing after a short series on effective evangelism. Uh, just a point of review from that series up here on the board. God gave us the law as a grace gift, and we have to think about the law that way. A lot of people, uh, in Christendom even, do not think of the law that way. They think of it as an oppressive sort of a yardstick that you get beat down with. Uh, and that's improper thinking, and I think that's a function probably of, or the nature, or, or a function of where we are in this, in this particular geography. Given the religion that's prevalent here in this area, um, the law has been used as sort of a, a device or a vehicle to toe the line against, um, to almost set fear in people uh, in a wrong way, in a very wrong way. Uh, for those of us who know better, the law is a grace gift, uh, especially as evangelists. Paul wrote in Romans 7, 7, part B, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And understanding your sin is what brings you to repentance and then salvation. So without repentance, there is no salvation Therefore, the presence of the law and our ability to understand it, to know it, and be convicted by it is actually the first step of the gospel. And so in that, from that perspective, we have to think of it as a grace gift. It activates the gospel itself in a way. So given the fact that the human flesh could think of you know, a million and one things it'd rather be doing than being told it's wretched, because that's what the law does, it stands opposed to the self-righteousness of the human flesh, we see myriad responses to the news that the law brings. We see myriad responses to the news the law brings. Everything from aggressive or even violent responses to weeping. All you have to do is go on YouTube and watch some street evangelists give someone the truth about the law 
to try to evangelize someone, uh, it doesn't take very long for them to become offended. And there's usually two routes. The extremes are they become either aggressive or they might weep even. I've seen both. And some of you might even have seen both. Uh, I think, Scott, you said one time you were at the mall or something and some girl just started crying or, and another one went kind of batty, right? So I ask you to consider the following as you use the law in your evangelistic activities up here on the board. Do not be fooled. We see tears and we don't recognize that they spring from a root of arrogance. Just because someone's crying in front of you or someone doesn't like what the law uh, does to their uh, conscience doesn't mean, it might even bring out tears, doesn't mean that we should respond uh, the wrong way to said tears. So we see tears and we don't recognize that they spring from a root of arrogance. When the flesh is offended, it often cries out for relief. I say seize the moment, but never compromise. It just means that they've been affected. Something got through to them. Seize the moment, but don't ever compromise. Don't do that thing that we want to do in our weakness. We sort of begin to sort of uh, lessen the blow of their depravity. We don't want to do that either. It's not our business. So the call to action from the series on effective evangelism has been this up here in the board. Are you willing to express the love of God through the gospel? Will you suffer for doing good for presenting a known stumbling block to an unbeliever? Will you evangelize for God rather than for self, bearing the load of your own cross? Will you evangelize for God rather than for self, bearing the load of your own cross? Some of you object, but remember uh, why we've been studying the Lord is our confidence all this time. The end result is more time abiding experientially in the sphere of God. Why have we been studying the Lord is our confidence all this time? Because the end result is more time abiding experientially in the sphere of God. When we're led to or back to the throne of grace, we enjoy the fruit, but we must obey the call to obedience. And that's going to be a word that we're going to rest on the rest of this evening, obedience. What begins, think of it this way, what begins at salvation proper with the command to obey the gospel continues throughout our lives as we are commanded to walk by the Spirit. And so every phase of sanctification as we know it begins with obedience. We are commanded to obey the gospel proper, and that's how we're saved. But then we're also commanded to walk by the Spirit, that phase that some theologians would call out as sanctification proper. So the greatest command given to we believers uh, of all, especially for us believers, is to love. When asked what the greatest command is, Jesus answered, go to Mark 12, verse 30. Mark 12, verse 30. When asked what the greatest command is, Jesus answered this way, Mark 12, verse Verse 30. 
So as we sort of venture back to the Lord is our confidence, this idea of obedience keeps percolating up, and for good reason. Because if we want that confidence, we have to obey. If we want to abide in the sphere of God's confidence, of Christ's confidence, the only way there, as we've learned, is to obey. So again, the greatest command given, though, is to love. And as we know from Jesus, love and obedience are intrinsically bound. Look at Mark 12, verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so these are commandments. We are commanded to obey the gospel, and then we're commanded to love. And what's the fulfillment of the law? To love. So this isn't just what we might call pie-in-the-sky speaking from Jesus either. He doesn't just say, you know, kumbaya, let's just, let's just love everyone. This isn't pie-in-the-sky speaking. The Bible gives us perfectly understandable, very clear instructions on what love is. On what love is. This is a very important distinction, especially in today's day and age, with romance on the big screen, the little screen, the internet screen. Uh, go to 1 John 5, verse 1. We need to understand, what did Jesus mean when he commanded, when he said the greatest command is to love? What does he mean? Does that mean we turn into Fabio? <laughs> Grow our hair long and try to, you know, swoop women off their feet? Is that what love is? Or does the Bible have something to say about what true love is? 1 John 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know, now this is the wonderful thing about the word of God, we have been get, we've been given distinguishing features of love. What does love look like? What is this love that Jesus commanded? Well, we just saw that we're able to love him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and what? Oh. oh, and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God. You ready? That we keep his commandments. Any questions? I know a lot of Christians that say, I love Jesus, I love God. Do you keep his commandments? Are you just gum flapping like the rest of the crowd? Or do you actually mean what you say? Do you understand what love actually is? And so the proof is in the pudding. And that's what the Spirit's been teaching us. Who doesn't want the confidence of Christ? I do. Who doesn't want to abide in the sphere of God's love? I do. How do I get there? Obey. Obey. That's how you get there. That's actually how you stay there as a believer. Obedience. So there it is in, 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 in plain writing. For this is the love of God. What? Romance? No. Falling, you know, I'm just, I just want to fall in love. 
Is that the love that Jesus spoke of? No, absolutely not, that we keep his commandments. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. That's the love of God. So, there we have one of the great revelations in the Holy Bible. And I hope you never forget it. I hope you never forget it. It has everything to do with love. And by virtue of Holy Scripture, it has everything to do with this obedience. Everything to do with love, everything to do with obedience. Why? What's the point? And we're obviously we're we're on our exit strategy, right? Part 51. We're coming out, we're backing out of this deep dive, 51 parts. We're backing out, we're sort of looking at the writing, where we've been in the past in our lessons, and he's sort of summarizing on the way out. And the summary has everything to do with love and obedience. It's how we entered, if you remember. Remember this? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Remember that? They were intrinsically bound. It's how we styled at the beginning of this 51, now 51-part 51 series. So I'm not surprised that on the way out, obedience is one of the uh, preeminent features of our messages. Why? Here's why. Sanctification depends upon obeying God's commands. Sanctification depends upon obeying God's commands. First, we obey the gospel. I just wrote a blog on that. The gospel is a command. First, we obey the gospel. Then, we obey the command to love, which is the fulfillment of the law. You want to be a law-abiding citizen? Remember, like Philippians uh, 1.20, I believe it is? Our citizenship is in heaven. You want to be a law-abiding citizen in the kingdom of God? Obey. Love. Hmm. When we obey the command to love, again, it is the fulfillment of the law. Romans 13, 8 to 14. There's a good summary for we believers here. Go to Romans 13, 8. It's worth reading. Romans 13, verse 8, to sort of substantiate the principle on the board. Thank you for my tea, Jim. Good stuff, as always. A couple of floaties in there, though. What happens? Does the bag blow out? No, seriously, what happens, you think? They're everywhere in there. I just, I just drink it right down. I don't even care. That's how I roll. <laughs> Romans 13, 8. Wonderful summary of what the Spirit's trying to say so far in this message. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Again, you have to understand what love is, but once you do, this is it. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, Love is the fulfilling of the law. 
Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. That means we're being sanctified. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But check this out. This is awesome. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm positive that's the Greek word in duo. We've studied it in the past. To put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Remember that Greek word in duo means to don like a piece of clothing, to be cloaked with it. Put him on. That's the, that's the visual. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This phrase is among the most vivid, important phrases of all, uh, for all of us believers up here on the board. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This describes sanctification in a nutshell. It's a daily thing. We get up, we put him on. We fail, we put him back on. We get up again the next day, we put him on. We keep him on. Some of us, <laughs> some of us come home, we look like a, one of those hicks, right? We got sleeves missing, it's shredded, right? Like at the Hulk pants on, you know what I'm saying? You got to put him back on. Nobody else besides DJ thought that was funny. I worked hard for that. This describes sanctification in a nutshell, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, the end goal of sanctification is to be formed into the image. I should say the. I can already see Monica writing. Into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Galatians 4.19, Ephesians 4.20-24, Philippians 3.13-14, Colossians 2.6-7, 1 John 3. Two to three. As you can see, there's no shortage uh, in the substance of the principle on the board. Again, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ describes sanctification in a nutshell. The end goal of sanctification is to be formed into the image of Christ. Now think of it this way in the context of our series here. Jesus Christ is our confidence, right? The Lord is our confidence. And his life of obedience is the prototype life, as Scripture reveals. Keep that in mind. Go to 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18. We're just going to go through these uh, verses, these reference points quickly. Again, keep this in mind that Jesus Christ is our confidence, and His life of obedience is the prototype life, as Scripture reveals. And this is what it means to be sanctified, to be made into His image, to be formed into His image, to be sanctified that way. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And so that sort of lays out the progressive nature, which is why sometimes if you read some theologians, they won't say experiential sanctification. They'll say progressive sanctification. The whole idea is that it's a progressive thing that happens. 
we are being transformed into the image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And that just means that His power is behind the whole thing. Go to Galatians 4.19. Galatians 4.19. Again, we're talking about putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and that this is really what sanctification is. Galatians 4.19. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That was Paul showing his heart. Remember the Galatians were under attack with the Judaizers. You know, you work for righteousness, this kind of a thing. And so Paul agonized as a shepherd over this congregation, this church, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. In other words, I want to see you sanctified. I want to see you put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to see you abide in his love experientially. I want you to reap all the benefits of obedience of faith. And that's why Paul was never afraid to remind people, just like you have a good pastor here. He's goofy, but he loves you. He loves the Lord first, and he keeps reminding you. Hey, get back in the saddle. Hey, remember this, remember this, remember this. And a broken record, so be it. You guys are slow learners. We all are. DJ's the only one again in his Hulk pants. Amen. You're the only one. <laughs> this must be all for you. They're all waiting. They're all waiting for you. Catch up, will you? <laughs> Go to Philippians 3.13. Philippians 3.13. Verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And that's a wonderful attitude about sanctification. <coughs> I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Again, this upward call can easily be related back to obedience of faith. The upward call, obedience of faith. Again, the principle on the board, we're still pivoting on put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This describes sanctification in a nutshell. Remember, the end goal of sanctification is to be formed into the image of of Christ. Let's see the last few references now. Go to Colossians 2, verse 6. Excuse me, Colossians 2, 6. Colossians 2, verse 6. This is what it means to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it looks like. Colossians 2, 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. There you have a command. Walk in Him then. You've received Him. You've been saved. Walk in Him. Put Him on daily. Be transformed daily. That's what sanctification is. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. How about 1 John 3, verse 2? 1 John 3, verse 2. 
This is more towards the end product, if you would, or the end of the road for sanctification. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And that's a reference to sanctification, of course. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Go to, let's see, go to, did I, did I skip John? Yeah, go to 1 John 4, 11. 1 John 4, 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Perfected in the Greek also means matured, which means that sanctification takes place over time. Again, this is what it means. The point on the board, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It describes sanctification in a nutshell. I purposely skipped one passage in there. Go to Ephesians 4.20. Go to Ephesians 4.20, only because it shows sort of the uh, what comes off and what goes on during this sanctification process. Ephesians 4, verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. To what? Put off the opposite of put on Jesus. Put off your old self. Get rid of that thing. Put off that thing which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on, that's the same Greek word in duo, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so there you see the, the, the whole cycle, if you would. Put off the old, put on the new. Put off the old, put on Christ. Again, one final time, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This describes sanctification in a nutshell. The end goal of sanctification is to be formed into the image of Christ. So, what does this teach us then? Well, Paul wrote about obedience being at the root of salvation and sanctification. Put on. It's a command. Put that on. And so Paul often wrote about obedience, obedience of faith. So he wrote about obedience being at the root of salvation proper. That's the gospel commanded. And also sanctification, or what we would call progressive or experiential sanctification. Both require one thing, obedience. He would also ask his disciples about perversions to this. For example, go to Galatians 5, verse 7. Galatians 5, verse 7. We can all relate to this, I believe. We have times where we seem to be doing magnificently, and then we fall off the wagon, so to speak. We have a rough patch. Something gets the best of us. We get down. We get depressed. We get overwhelmed by, I don't know, what, what is it for you guys? Work? Relationship? I don't know. Friends? Family? It's that time of year. The pressure, which is ridiculous, 
but the pressure that comes seems to come during this time of the year for a lot of people. Galatians 5, 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Again, obedience in full view. You were running well. The implication is you were obeying. Who hindered you? What happened? When did you stop? This is a reflective verse, right? When did you stop obeying? And who was involved? See, he was dealing with outside stimuli, right? Outside attacks, which most of you can relate to. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. If you read, say, and we're going to in a, in a moment here, as one other proof point, if you read the book of Romans, same writer, same Pauline attitude, same unabashed, if you would, um, response to disobedience, if you read the book of Romans from beginning to end, you quickly realize that Paul wrote about salvation and sanctification as functions of obedience throughout. If you read the entire book, if you take the time, say, I don't know, whenever, read it all the way through. It might take you a little while. It's not that big. It's like 16 chapters. I mean, it's not that big, right? And the chapters, it's not like a, a book, a literary book where the chapters are like 30 pages long. It doesn't take that long to read. But if you do that thing, what you'll realize is that Paul spent a lot of time highlighting obedience and tying that thing to salvation and sanctification. For example, go to Romans 1.5. Romans 1.5. I'm going to show you something. Maybe you've seen it before, maybe you haven't. But just so you don't take my word for it, I'm going to give you the bookends. Romans 1.5. And by the way, Romans 1.5 is midstream of a single sentence. Okay? So if you'll notice, from Romans 1 through 1.5, there's no break in the sentence structure. Okay? So this is the in other words, this is the first sentence in the book of Romans. Fair enough? So midstream, Romans 1.5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience, the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You got it? To bring about the obedience of faith, including you, if you're a believer. Paul also taught that obedience is an inescapable reality for all of mankind. Go to Roman, go to the end. Go to Romans uh, 6, actually no, go to Romans 6.16. We'll get to the end in a moment. This is sort of middle of the book stuff. So you see, you saw the first sentence. You're seeing just a sample in the middle. And... What he's postulating here is that we're always a slave. We're always obedient to someone, to something, whether we want to admit that or not. Uh, we might even be obedient to our own flesh. But we're obedient. We're slaves, doulos, right? We're slaves to someone, always. Romans 6.16 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, 
or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So you see that in the middle of the book of Romans. At salvation, God changes our hearts, forming them with an intrinsic desire to obey. Remember, it's our flesh that objects to such things. This is why we are able to say with the same confidence as the one who said it, you shall know them by their fruit. That those without a heart for obedience are imposters. I just wrote a blog uh, this morning for this week, for this weekend for you all, uh, that speaks to this particular situation. Those without a heart for obedience are imposters. It's that simple. Those without a heart for obedience are imposters. I'm not saying you can't have a heart and you fail, because who doesn't fail? But if you don't intrinsically want to obey, something is awry. Why? Because the Bible says that God changes your heart to a heart of obedience. That's why. And if you don't have that heart, then you haven't been saved. That's the logic. The very last sentence in the great work of Paul in the book of Romans mentions this very thing. So, I kind of alluded to it earlier, but do you think it's important? Given this topic is in the very first sentence in the book and the last sentence in the book, do you think that the bookends mean something? I mean, isn't that what we were taught as kids even? You start off with an opening paragraph and you end with some kind of summary. What's in the opening paragraph? It's a summary of things to come in the body. What's in the last paragraph? It's a summary of what someone just read. So if you look at the bookends, you're really talking about what's the, what's the nature of the thing that I'm reading? And in the, this case, you have 16 chapters which are bookended with the concept of obedience of faith. Hmm. Do you think maybe, just maybe, obedience of faith was a fundamental point on, God, on uh, Paul's mind when he wrote this incredible work? Go to Romans 16.25. Romans 16.25. I think that's fair to say. I'll let you decide for yourself. Some of you are like, I'll never decide because I'll never read the book of Romans in one sitting. It's way too long. It's going to run... It's gonna, it's going to run into my happy days reruns. <laughs> well, my Bill Bixby. Anybody? Oh. <laughs> Romans 16, 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about what? The obedience of faith. Look at this, the very last sentence in the book. We started it with a one sentence with the topic there and we close with the same topic. To the only wise God be glory 
forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. What is fair to say in a synopsis of this, this great book that people really spend almost inordinate amounts of time on, especially in contemporary Christianity, to Paul, obedience was the key to sanctification. Obedience was the key to sanctification. As I like to say over years now, humility is the key to the spiritual life. Well, humility has an object, doesn't it? I mean, you have to be humble. Well, you have to humble yourself under a sovereign rule, right? Well, what do you think obedience is? It's the fruit of said humility. And here's the beautiful thing about our 51-part study. Hopefully you can pull it together uh, yourself at this point. When we're obedient, we're confident. That is beautiful. Not, I didn't write that. I mean, this is the Spirit's work. To have a summary like that and to be convicted of it and to be convinced of it after 51 parts. When we're obedient, we're confident. What does the world teach us? Just step back. What does the world teach us? The world teaches us James Dean was the picture of confidence, right? Rebel without a cause, right? The confident people are the ones who are able to buck the system. That's what true confidence looks like. Challenge the authorities. And God says something entirely different. The exact polar opposite, actually. That if you want real confidence that can withstand real pressure in this world, then obey. Be obedient to Him. Study the Word of God. Read your Bible. Take in whatever grace God has chosen to give you from this pulpit, from the blogs, from your Bible studies, from your reading of your own Bible, from your prayer life, from your interactions with other members of the, the family of God. I mean, all of that. You want to have confidence in life? That's where it starts. And that's what Paul wrote. He just kept telling people the same thing. He's like, Who's bewitched you now? Who got under your skin now? Who batted their eyelashes this time? What carrot are you chasing this time? Why are you disobedient now? When we're obedient, when we orient to the holy God of the universe, that's when we find our confidence. It's that simple. Self-confidence the way the world describes it, is one of the greatest lies ever peddled. There is no such thing. Why do I say that? I used to live on it. And he smashed it down. He said, that's ridiculousness. Some of you are nodding your heads right now because you know exactly what I'm talking about. We know it through experience even. A lot of people put on a good show. Right? A lot of people are really good at putting on a good show. But when the pressure hits, when they're all alone, and they're weeping, and they can't sleep, and they're miserable, God sees it all and says, I'm trying to deliver you from that. Stop disobeying. Starts with the gospel. So I might be talking about an unbeliever even. Starts with the gospel. But if they're a believer, it continues with the word of God. You want confidence like Christ? Obey. Jesus Christ was 
perfectly obedient. Perfectly obedient. He says so. He taught his disciples that very thing. So reflect on this. The world doesn't want you to see what I've been teaching all this time in this series. It does not want you to understand what the Spirit even said this evening. It doesn't want you to be sanctified because, as we noted in Romans 16, 27, sanctification brings glory to God. I need you to knit this together. I need you to concentrate. The world doesn't want you to be sanctified because, according to Scripture, sanctification brings glory to God. Satan doesn't want the glory to go to God because that's an indictment against his own plans to reign as sovereign. This is why the Spirit's been opening our eyes to the truth about obedience. To my previous point, we live in a culture that promotes anti-authority. Promotes it. Why? Just for the sake of feeling like a rebel? I mean, I suppose the human flesh gets kicks out of being disobedient. We know that we know from Scripture that sin is excited at the idea of being given a, a boundary condition, right? Don't give a boundary condition? Eh, give a boundary condition? What'd you do? You told me I can't do it, now all I want to do is do it, right? That's the human flesh. We know that from Scripture. It says it right in Holy Scripture. Romans 7, 8, 9 up here on the board. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment. In other words, once the commandment was given, sin came alive. It was excited by the opportunity to assert itself against the boundary condition. That's sin. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Again, I suppose that's part of it, the human flesh getting its kicks out of disobedience. But here's the concentration point this evening. There's a deeper objective the kingdom of darkness strategizes around, a more insidious one. Again, we live in a culture that promotes anti-authority, but the end goal is ancient. The end goal is to undermine sanctification itself. The end goal is to undermine sanctification itself. It's not just about being a rebel and I'll show God. It's about undermining sanctification itself. Why? Because we just saw it in Romans 16. Sanctification brings glory to God. That's the last thing the kingdom of darkness wants. It's the last thing Satan wants. And so the end goal is to undermine sanctification itself. We just learned that salvation and sanctification are commands and therefore functions of obedience, right? Well, what if Satan in the kingdom of darkness can get you to disobey? What's the end result? The answer? He has frustrated God's good intention to sanctify you. It's not about being a rebel. It's about frustrating sanctification. So, practically speaking... Every time we choose to sin, which really is disobeying the holy God of the universe, 
Every time we choose to sin, we injure our own sanctification. Now you see how critically important the word of truth is. It's not understanding the truth that sets you free, as Jesus said it. It's not something that is known existentially, like some moronic Christians like to postulate. It's not that thing. You don't just say, I love Jesus, and God, I think, loves me, and so I'm just going to walk through life and just make up my own mind about who God is and what even love is. It's not the contemporary error that I see most Christians make, which is something like this, you know, well, God loves me, so he's okay with me crafting him into my own little image. He loves me like that. He's a bad dad, in other words, because that, be that would be poor fathering for, for say, a little, a little child to wrap daddy around their finger. That, that is, a, is a weak man. But this is what people, these are the conclusions people come to in the absence of truth. They make up their own image of God. And they assign their own attributes to his essence. And I was thinking about this, you know, what kind of analogies are there out there for this thing? Like, what about this? This, let me put it this way, see if it makes sense. Isn't all of that the same delusional thinking that gets us into trouble and romance? Isn't that the same delusional thinking? In other words, I don't want to know the truth about relationships. And I'm not even going to talk about homosexuality, because that's its own perversion. I'm talking about, let's just say man and woman. I don't want to know the truth about why God gave us something as sacred as, say, marriage. So I'm going to continue in my delusion. I'm just going to make it up. I'm going to read some books with some long-haired queer on the cover, right? Or some disgusting television series where everybody's sleeping with everybody and they call it love in the club, right? It's okay. You can laugh. It's, it's ridiculous. But that's what's being peddled to our children. And that's the delusion that's being propagated in this world. Nobody has the truth about God's intention for man-woman relationships. So as a side note to all you single people out there, love isn't the answer, strictly speaking. Integrity to truth is. Love isn't the answer. Integrity to truth is, when you're looking for a husband or a wife, you're not looking for love immediately. Accept the love the person has for the Lord. That is the hallmark that you're looking for. When's the last time you saw that on HBO? In the club. Do you love the Lord?
how, pray tell, might you identify this love exists in another person? Anybody want to do a drum roll? Jesus said, I was just kidding. Monica's like, absolutely. <laughs> Jesus said, at least she's an active participant. Jesus said, if you love me, how do you identify that in another person? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the answer is, is this person you're potentially courting for marriage, above all else, obedient to the Lord? Above all else, obedient to the Lord. If you say, well, they don't know the Lord yet, then you shouldn't even be looking at them that way. Shame on you. You should be looking at them as a potential brother or sister. But most definitely not romantically, whatever that is. That's the delusion. And it's a good analogy to any other form of delusion that exists as a function of the absence of truth. People will just conjure up whatever they want to, whatever their flesh desires. The error is that most Christians I know assign attributes to God based solely on conjecture, not the word of truth. They form an image of him that doesn't suit him. Rather, it suits themselves. It's not only easier but it's much more accommodating to human sensibilities. And that's precisely what Satan wants you to do. He wants you to forego the command to learn the Word of God. He wants you to forego the command to submit to a pastor even. He wants you to forego any form of authority. Because God knows that Holy Scripture has authority over you, just like I have a certain authority over you. That's what Satan wants. He wants you to buck authority. Not to be a rebel, because it's cool, but because it frustrates sanctification. It has you meandering around in life, miserable at that, looking for love in all the wrong places, riding the dysfunction junction roller coaster, all of that, anything but Christ, anything but truth, because that brings glory to God because that's how we're sanctified. Obedience of faith, sanctification, glory to God. So that's exactly what Satan wants you to do, disobey. The game most Christians play in their giant churches is, well, and this is the beauty about giant churches, and I'm not picking on giant churches for the sake of being giant, but this is a prevalent issue in giant churches. You can hide out. Not a whole lot of hiding out in here, is there? <laughs> in a giant church, if there were a thousand people here tonight, you could kind of hide out in the back. They play this game. Well, everyone else is doing it this way, so it must be okay. And there's that group mentality. And I have here in my notes, ugh. Tammy and I were just talking about the crowd mentality last night. 
being a teacher, she's seen an increase in broken families. Now, I'm not picking on anybody that comes from a broken family or was in the middle of a broken family or was even the cause of a broken family. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just looking at a trend in our society. That's all I'm looking at. And so, as a first grade teacher, she sees an increase in broken families. Um, and the crazy thing is, nobody even bats an eye at it anymore. Meanwhile, these kids can hardly focus in school because of the emotional damage that's been done when mom and dad decide to blow up the household for someone they met on Facebook. My friends, this kind of thinking, there's no other way to teach it, but it's not okay with God. Is that fair? How do I know? Look at this. You ready? Malachi 2.16, for I hate divorce, says the Lord. He doesn't say, you know, all right, all right. He says, I hate divorce. Any questions? Honestly, any questions? There it is, right in Holy Scripture. You don't believe it? Open up your Bible when you go home. You read it for yourself. I'm going to say that runs contrary to what is prevalent in our society. And I'm not picking on anybody that's been divorced. So if you're getting all twitchy, relax. This isn't about you, so stop being self-absorbed. This is about a, a, a concept that people don't want to abide in the truth. You get it? And because of that, because of that disobedience to the truth, because of their lack of submission to the truth, they suffer. And they make others suffer. And the world is watching them because they say, I'm a Christian too. And they're suffering for the decisions they've made. And the rest of the world says, geez, I don't know about that Christian thing. They look miserable. They all look miserable. And that does not bring glory to God. Amen? That does not bring glory to God. What brings glory to God is when you are sanctified when you are set apart for His good purposes, when you obey. I didn't say this, so don't get mad at me. This is what's in the Word of God. Don't believe me? Here's a novel idea. Read your own Bible. I invite you to do I invite you to challenge me. Why? Because you know what? Here's what I love about this challenge. Even if I'm wrong, guess what you're doing? You're reading your Bible. I don't have everything right. So if you don't believe me, go read your own Bible. Love it. I'm not offended if I've got something wrong. Anybody here want to raise their hand and say they got everything right? <laughs> holy Scripture is Holy Scripture. And that's that. So, I have three minutes left. Do you think that Satan wants you to understand God's position on the sanctity of, say, something like marriage? Do you think Satan wants you to know that verse right there? Most single Christians have never heard what I just said a few minutes ago about romance, love, and obedience. I, I'm thinking Satan's laughing all the way to the bank. Do you think his commandments exist for a reason? Go to Ephesians 1.18, quickly. Ephesians 
Do you think his commandments exist for a reason? Here's the reason. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Read the word of God. That's commandment. That's commandment like A1, right? As a believer. Read the word of God. Take in holy writ. Ephesians 1.18 Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. We could probably stop right there. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. He didn't call you to destitution. He didn't call you not to be sanctified. He didn't call you to a state of misery. He called you to himself. He called you to sanctification. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Up here on the board, and I, I have to end here because I'm out of time. But do you think, ask this, rest on this question, do you think he gave us commandments for a reason? Maybe, just maybe, with all the commandments we've just seen just this evening, your eyes have been opened up a little bit more. Amen? Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. It is difficult to get our arms around this. By the grace of God, he blesses us with spiritual sight which changes us profoundly. We get to see him while alive on earth, and we love him in response. 1 John 4, 19. We love him because he first loved us. Isn't that beautiful? See how it all comes together? It's that simple. It begins with obedience. I know everybody's like, oh, why are you going to bring that back up? <laughs> why couldn't we just have closed on love? I like love. If you keep my commandments, my commandments, you'll what? Abide in my love. We did end up on love. Do you understand? Obedience and love, are the, they're the same. They're intrinsic. So it doesn't matter if I end up on love or obedience. They're the same. In your soul, when you mature to a certain point, you'll see that if you, ha if you don't already. That obedience and love, they're in the same sphere of God. One's not offensive to the other. They're not, a, they're not opposed to one another. One's not a whip and the other one's, you know, a cushion. They're the same. You understand? They're the same. And that's what he's been teaching us, and that's how your eyes get opened. And that's what sanctification is, and that's what brings glory to God. Better? Ah, all right, amen. <laughs> you look disappointed. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this opportunity to study your word for the ability to take in truth that sets us free and for giving us the faculties to do so. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to our homes and the privacy of our own souls and through fellowship in our homes and then, of course, out to a world that just seems to be running away from your son, Father. We just ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you.